We're going to be looking at the, uh, the book of Habakkuk this morning. And so, you know, go ahead and just sort of a little bit like the middle and then write, you know, uh, a little chunk of pages and it's in there. You'll find it. This is, this is where you, uh, you start going and talking to your primary school-aged kids who are learning the songs, right, of the, book of the books of the Bible. And you say, hey, help me remember how those minor prophets all go. Well, by way of um, just kind of setting the context this morning, Habakkuk takes place around, as best as we can figure out, around 607 B.C., okay? It's focused on Judah, Judah and God, and uh, the, the, the idea of it being around 607 B.C. is because prior to that, Judah had gone through a time of just wonderful reform with King Josiah. King Josiah um, purged the land of a lot of the idolatry and instituted reforms. I mean, for the first time in, in hundreds of years, Judah had heard the law, read the law, sought to apply the law, and, and everything like that. And so that was a, that was a wonderful time of, of Judah being led by a godly king. And yet when he died, um, then Jehoiakim, well, one intervening king just for a few months, but then Jehoiakim came to the throne, and he was, he was a he was an evil man. He was a godless man who quickly plunged Judah back into sin, back into idolatry, and that affected everything about the nation. And so, uh, as we're going to find out, Habakkuk is lamenting the current state of Judah and their godlessness. And concurrent with that, in the political scene, uh, Assyria, which had carried the northern tribes off to exile prior, was on the decline in power on the world scene, and on the rise was Babylon, or Chaldea, depending on whether you're talking about the, the, the more the geographical area or the people, those names are sort of interchangeable, all right, and so Babylon was on the rise in terms of power as Assyria declined to the point that Babylon was even going to end up conquering, basically breaking the back of Assyria in 605, and so everybody's hearing about this nation, the, the Chaldeans, and their rise to power. So that's sort of the historical context of the book. And now Habakkuk, I was telling Pastor Myrell that it's a little bit interesting how he prefaced it because I feel like Habakkuk is a little bit even unique from a lot of the minor prophets simply because Habakkuk actually is more of a dialogue between the prophet and God than it is the prophet talking to the people saying, thus says the Lord. And so it's a little bit different than even what Myrl had introduced. And yet many of the themes are the same. And so it's almost instead of more like the prophet taking God's word and then, and then delivering it to the people, it's the people being able to learn from the interaction of the prophet and God many of the same things that the other prophets were telling directly to the people, if that makes sense. And so it's a little bit of a different... Uh, feel to it than what some of the other prophets will be that we'll go through, but just just fabulous. I wish we had, and we're probably going to say this for every uh, letter, every book, but I wish we had time to actually study through each of these on a, on a longer term, because the more time that you spend in them, the richer that it is revealed to be, and yet there's going to be some sweet 
truths that we'll be able to encounter even this morning with a brief flyover. So let's pray and then we'll jump into the text. Father, you are great. You are just. You are merciful. You are faithful. These things stand out like shining beacons of light and truth in this book of the Bible. And so I pray that you would help us to apprehend those, to, Lord, that you and your spirit would drive them into our hearts and apply them into our lives and that we would be encouraged both in this moment and then also in the days and weeks to come, just in our own study, to recognize the, the, the treasure that is your word as it shows us who you are from the beginning to the end. So make this just a profitable and edifying time, we pray, through the work of your spirit for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I timed it. It takes about eight minutes to read Habakkuk. So we're going to read Habakkuk. Ben, you seem a little, you know, unsure. I I understand the unsurety, and we'll see. But we're going to read it, and we're uh, going to have some comments as we go, and... um, and then at the end, we'll kind of draw it all together. So you have your handouts. I'm not going to necessarily go through the key verses, but at the end, we'll touch on the primary lessons and discuss the, the impact for today. All right, so Habakkuk chapter 1. This is the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Pause. What's going on right here is Habakkuk responding to the culture of Judah as he looks around. Like I said, Josiah had been good. Jehoiakim plunged Judah back into sin, back into selfishness, back into ignoring the law, back into ignoring God. And so this was the result. Violence, iniquity, wickedness, destruction, strife, contention. All of those are just abounding as Habakkuk looks at culture around him. And so he is distressed over that sinfulness. And in his distress, actually, you can see there, he says... How long will I call for help and you will not hear? He, he has this, he's tempted to think, right? And he's, and he's feeling as if God is, he's either ignorant or he's disconnected or he's distant or he's in, uninterested or he, he doesn't know. He just looks around and he says, this is awful, God. This is not what you call your people to be. And you don't seem to be doing anything about it. How long, O Lord? And so this is what we call a lament, right? Hardship, pain, agony, and he takes that and he brings it to God. It's a lament. How long? Why? He takes those difficulties and he brings them to God. And then in verse 5, God answers. God answers. And it's, verse 5 is a, just a, a wonderful and, and really kind of a, an emphatic setup to his reply. Look at what God says in verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. 
Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. I'll tell you what, if, if God said that to you, you better pay attention to the next things. And I mean, the, the anticipation of this in what God said is, is intense. In verse 6, God reveals his plan for judging Judah's sin. He says this, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and fear, feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. The horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. So God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is this. Chaldea is my tool and I am fully aware of their character. I am fully aware of the nature of this nation who has done all these things. You know, they've, they've, they've captured cities, they laugh at kings, they, they, they capture captives, and they devour people. They're obsessed with violence, they're dreaded, they're feared, they're independent, they don't accept authority or justice from anybody except themselves, they're swift. God says, this is my tool that I am bringing to address the sinfulness of Judah. And as he states that they're his tool, he says, I'm fully aware of their character and the nature of the nation of the Chaldeans. So if you think about it from Habakkuk's perspective then, Habakkuk is thinking, God, God is going to use these people? I'm, I'm crying out for God to rectify this situation of the sinfulness of Judah, and yet this is God's plan? When I ask for intervention for the sake of Judah's righteousness and good and, and change, he chooses them. And you can hear this in Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. That's a sweet couple of sentences right there the personal nature of Habakkuk's relationship with his God and then his trust that even in the midst of this we they, they won't they won't fully perish so verse 12 are you not from everlasting O Lord my God my holy one we will not die you O Lord have appointed them the Chaldeans to judge and you O rock have established them to correct but then here's some of this conflict that Habakkuk saw between God's character and God's choice of tool. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? He's talking about the Chaldeans. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Which is a certain irony to that because... Habakkuk was just saying and bemoaning the wickedness of Judah 
and how awful it is, and yet he's saying, well, they're more righteous than the Chaldeans. And so how can you look and be silent when they, the wicked there swallow up those more righteous than they? Verse 14, he says, Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them, all those men, up with a hook. They drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk's wrestling with the, the classic conundrum that evil can seem prosperous and seem even vindicated. And yet in his distress, what does he say? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and I will station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. There's a great example of being willing to wait. A great example of being willing to, in the midst of communicating distress and hardship, in, uh, to, a great example of being willing to just sit back and listen. He's expecting another reply. And so he says, I'm going to stand and I'm going to wait to see what will God's response be. He's, he's expecting even a reproof here. He knows that he doesn't have it all together and that God's going to address it. But in his distress, Habakkuk perceives this contradiction between God's character. Your eyes are too pure. You don't approve of evil. And he sees a contradiction between that and the nature of the Chaldeans that God is going to use to bring about the the consequences of Judah's sin because of their evil and because of their wickedness and their pride and their destruction and their violence. And so Habakkuk says, look, I just don't see it, God, because it seems like you're just giving them license and you're just giving them your approval to do as they see fit, and it's evil. But I'll wait and I'll listen. I'll explain to you my hardship, I'll explain to you my confusion, I'll explain to you my struggle, and yet I will wait and I will listen. So chapter 2, verse 2, God does reply. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, which I think refers to verse 4 through 20. Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. Listen to these verses. Think of, think of 2 Peter 3, 9, and, and, and the idea of God's sovereignty over his own timing. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. You hear that surety there? And then I think here's the the, the content of the vision. Verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. You could have a multitude of sermons on that because, I mean, that, that's, that verse there is brought into Galatians and, and Romans and Hebrews, but we don't have time for that, so stop. All right, so verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live 
by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is, like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all people. He's talking about the Chaldeans here. Will not all of these, and then he refers to the people that have been captured, will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, against Chaldea, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Again, he's talking to the Chaldeans right now, to the proud man. Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of the human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You note the transience of verse 13 and the, and the, and the, the transcendence of verse 14. Amazing contrast. Verse 15, he says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You, Chaldea, the proud man, will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now, you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. That's the cup of judgment and destruction. And utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of the human bloodshed and violence done to the land to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, It is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's interesting. At the end of Habakkuk's response, he said, in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And how I may reply... When I am reproved, and the, the end of God's reproof, the end of God's answer is, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And what happens next? Habakkuk does not reply. <laughs> because in God's answer, God has said, Habakkuk, 
I am the judge. I am just. I am righteous. I am sovereign. I am sovereign over time. I am sovereign over nations. I alone am God. And his answer to Habakkuk communicates both a comfort and an encouragement and a strengthening to Habakkuk. There's so much in there that's rich. And we see some of the encouragement in Habakkuk's then his, his, his prayer and the end of chapter 3 you know, it talks about to be to be done with um, to be done with the, for the choir director on my stringed instruments, and so he he prays and sings this response, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. And before we get too far, what's what's interesting, and we see this prefaced here in verse two, Habakkuk seems to look both back. Uh, in, the, in the history of God, he's going to refer to Kushan, he's going to refer to Midian, he's going to refer to Mount Paran, which is uh, basically synonymous with Mount Sinai. He, so much of the language between Deuteronomy and this prayer here overlaps that he's looking both back at God's past redemptive and judgmental work and he's also looking forward to what God will do. The overlap is, is, is incredible. But he says this, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God comes from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, and he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I love that. Just push pause real quick. Look, look again at that. He references the, quote, perpetual mountains that get shattered, right? The things that we would perceive to be so immovable and so steadfast, but they're shattered. The ancient, you know, just time immemorial, the, the ancient hills are collapsed. They're crumbled. So it's, it's almost like air quotes, the, uh, the ancient hills, the perpetual mountains, because they get destroyed. But God's ways, those are everlasting. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. I think this is referring back to Gideon and and, and that deliverance there. Verse 8, did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? We're going to find out in verse 12 that the answer is no, it's not against the rivers and the sea. 
But verse 9, your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn, Salah. You cleaved the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and quaked, the downpour of waters swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Then this is why God marched and why he was angry. In indignation, verse 12, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. So it's pretty incredible, I think, both to look, as Habakkuk did, both to look back and to anticipate God's judgment and God's deliverance as he has seen in so many situations in Israel's past and anticipates based upon God's promise, based upon God's word, based upon even the vision that he had just seen. And now we see even in verse 16, we're going to see Habakkuk's like, like a personal note of response. Habakkuk doesn't just, he doesn't just blow off the coming judgment. He doesn't say, oh, sweet, God's in control, God's sovereign, so it's, it's all going to be hunky-dory and I don't have to worry. He doesn't blow it off. He understands the sobriety of it. I, th- I think of just like um, Jer- Jeremiah did when he overlooked the destruction of, of the city of Jerusalem and, and he penned lamentations. They don't, they don't blow it off and they don't whitewash it, but they, they put the suffering and they put the punishment and they put the hardship in context of God's character. And that is the right context in which to understand it and to respond. So let's look at verse 16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place, I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. You hear the uh, acceptance of that? God, you are just, you are sovereign. The sin deserves to be recompensed. Your covenant, as we're going to talk about in a moment, deserves to be held to. And it's hard. It has a visceral, gut-wrenching reaction in Habakkuk's own body. But he says, I understand it, I accept it. I will wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And then these next few verses are just, are, are some of the most amazing. He's going to end up talking about complete agricultural destruction. And Israel, Judah, was, was by and large an agricultural nation. 
fig tree, olive oil, um, crops, uh, livestock. Those, those were the, the bread and butter of Judah's life and economy. And yet in verse 17, what he says is astounding. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, and though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, that means there's nothing yet. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on my high places. There's this incredible idea of of safety in that notion of hinds feet and walking on high places because that's how that's how those those native critters would would escape from predators they 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 could climb anything they could they could climb trees they could climb uh, practically sheer rock cliff faces and so habakkuk is saying because of your character and because of your word, even though the fig tree doesn't produce, the olive doesn't produce, the vine doesn't produce, the sheep are all gone, the cows are all gone, even if all of that happens, I will exult. I will rejoice because of God who keeps me safe, because of God who works. And so Habakkuk's response is a sober rest in God's character and deliverance. And it's based on the past, it's based on the future, and it anchors him in the presence. And of course, such truths should be sung. It's for the choir director on stringed instruments. So what are some of the the, the primary lessons here? All right, that's that's a quick overview of Habakkuk. Some of the primary lessons are, are on the handout there, and there's more, you know, that, that you could take away, but think about God's faithfulness to His covenant. And this works both on the negative side and on the positive side, right? Because if you look back in Leviticus chapter 26, and I don't think there's time, but go back and look, review the, the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And he says, if you disobey, if you forsake my law, if you, you know, renege on what we have agreed to, then there will be consequences. And, and Moses even says, you're going to do that. And then that's part of the covenant. Okay, so there's the negative side of the covenant, which is if you disobey and forsake them, there will be uh, consequences. I will scatter you amongst the nations is one of the main consequences that he, God puts into that covenant. But then there's also the positive side, that God will always work in and through the people to bring about the Messiah that he has promised and he will always maintain a remnant amongst his people and he has given a promise to Abraham that he will bring about to fruition 
And so in that, there's also the complete assurance of being able to trust in God's covenant promise on the positive side. Um, if you were in first service, I was amazed at the, the, the bell tones that were struck of this idea in the psalm that was read. And if you're in second service, pay attention. The idea of God's covenant and his faithfulness, and, and because the psalm looks back at the narrative but then puts it in the context of the covenant and says, see, God promised. And so this is, this is a, a resounding theme throughout the history of Israel, and it should be a resounding theme for us as well, that God is faithful to who he is and what he has said. And he is faithful both to bless and protect and guard and keep his children, but he's also faithful to judge sin. He's faithful to recompense evil. He is faithful, all right? And that's a primary lesson. I think it's really easy sometimes for us to say that, but then almost practically in the midst of life, make God a liar. And we, 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 we accuse God of lying sometimes by our responses, saying, I know you promised that, but I really think this, which means even though you promise, it's not going to actually happen. Even though you said it, uh, that's not really what is going to be the case. Which makes God a liar. Every time of those doubts is, is, a, is a matter of God's character. Okay, and whether he means what he said and will do what he said. So we need to, we need to be able to address that um, with the Lord and within ourselves primary lesson, God's faithfulness to his covenant. Primary lesson number two, God's sovereignty over his own timeline. We see this, like I said, in in Peter's writings. We even see it in uh, Jesus' description of, you know, the the end times, the Olivet Discourse, as he says, look, you don't know this, but God does. Peter says, God is not slow to bring about the end because of some sort of just tardiness. He's, he's slow because of his timeline. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. His timeline is different. God is sovereign. God is faithful. And nothing happens outside of his timeline. And nothing does not happen outside of his timeline, if that makes sense. Nod your head if that makes sense. Some of you it does. Okay. Everything that happens is happening when God wants it to happen. And if God doesn't want something to happen, it doesn't happen. And if something doesn't happen, then it's because God doesn't want it to happen yet. See, we, we, we tend to think, well, I want the fulfillment now. You know, I want the blessing now. I want this relief or reprieve now or whatever. And yet God says, no, it's in my timing. My timing is perfect. My timing is not delayed and it is not sped up. God is sovereign over his timeline. Think about the unmatched, the third primary lesson, the unmatched glory and power of God. God referred to what was going to be the the preeminent power in the world. 
He was using them as a tool, and they were violent, and they were world-conquering, and they were taking over nations and laughing at kings and piling up rubble and taking over cities. And these were people and a power and a majesty and a strength that brought quivering to, to people that, that heard that the Chaldeans were coming. And yet what happened? One night. One night. The Medo-Persian Empire comes. And they're gone. They're conquered. That's how quickly God deals with world powers if he chooses. God has unmatched glory and unmatched power. We need to think also about the fourth primary lesson of God's integrity of character in judging sin. Sorry, the, regarding the whole Medo-Persian thing, if you look at the end of Second Chronicles, all right, or I think the end of Second Kings has it as well, for sure the end of Second Chronicles, that's where you see that happen. But Babylon is, is overthrown, which God had said would happen. Uh, fourth lesson, God's integrity of character in judging sin. Sin is recompensed. I put integrity because there's no there's no waffling from God. There's no uh, I, I, I don't need to deal with that or I'll just kind of let that one go. God has complete integrity of character when it comes to judging sin. One way or another. Right? And so that's why we see that he's dealing with Judah according to their sin. But he also deals with the Chaldeans according to their sin. All sin will be judged. Period. Through the Messiah, in the gospel, we know that he deals with our sin by pouring out his wrath upon that sin upon his own son and our Savior. And so we're forgiven of sin, but it's dealt with. It's judged. It's not just whitewashed or overlooked or anything like that and so we have a great joy and amazement in that but God has complete integrity of character in judging sin and in terms of impact for today that's the first idea we need to be sure of the judgment of sin if you flip over on the back page of the handout these are here you need to be sure of the judgment of sin both your own and the sin that goes on around you. Never doubt that God will deal with sin. Never doubt or think, never think that somebody's going to get away with something. And this is both convicting okay, and reassuring. It's convicting because as you consider your own sin and your own failings, you should not think, ah, no big deal. That's a freebie. That's a gimme. Sin 
is dealt with. All sin is dealt with. And we need to understand the seriousness of that. And it should be convicting to watch God deal with Judah, even as we saw, uh, well, you can see, at least, God's just multitude of offerings of, of forgiveness and come back and repent and turn to me. And yet, ultimately, he ended up dealing with their sin. It is the same for us. And like I said, if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, then your sin is dealt with, is judged in the person of Christ. And you don't have to bear that. And if you haven't repented and haven't placed your faith in Him, then right now you do bear and you will bear the judgment of your sin. And so I urge you to repent now because God will judge sin. But on the reassuring side, everything that goes on around us, the evil, the sin, the brokenness, the wrong, the wickedness, the unrighteousness, we need to not look at it as if God is detached, as if we are hopeless, as if God is helpless, as if He is uninterested in what's going on. God knows. God is fully aware. God is bringing about His timeline, His plan, and it will not involve a skipping over of sin because of who God is. So whether it's, whether it's world leaders, whether it's governments, whether it's nations and peoples doing horrendous atrocities, whether it's individuals, cultures, doing things like slaying babies all around, whatever the case, whether, whether it's whether it's your neighbor or your coworker who continually slanders you or, 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 or sabotages you at work or whatever the case, trust God to righteously judge sin. You know, we, we don't look at the world around us and say, oh, it's all out of control. It's not. Second thing, be content to wait on the Lord, trusting His faithfulness. Like I already intimated, we are very bad at waiting. I am very bad at waiting. And yet, we have to learn to wait. We have to learn to wait, and we can wait. The, all the better if we wait, reminding ourselves of who God is and what He has said. If we just sort of wait in a vacuum, then we're hosed. Because we're just going to wait with impatience and lack of faith and kind of this, this sense of independence, like I'm going to have to make something happen, and that's going to be welling up inside of us. But wait on the Lord, trusting His faithfulness in these things. Third, know that when God moves, nothing can stop Him. All right? Sometimes I, it's, it's easy to think that, uh-oh, if such and such happens to this nation hypothetically Israel or something, then God's plans are going to be thwarted. Or if something happens to such and such, then um, you know, God won't be able to do what he said. But the, 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 the truth of the matter is, nothing can stop God when he decides to move. Nothing. 
He brings up nations. He brings down nations. He brings up people. He brings down people. He brings about his plan, and nothing will stop it. Last, be encouraged by Habakkuk to take your problems, to take your confusions, to take your concerns to God in prayer. He doesn't look around and feel, oh, God's so distant, and I, I can't believe he's not fixing this, and then just sort of internalize it and deal with it and get all wrapped up inside his self and his own doubts and his own struggles and then spiral down into this chaos of despair. He says, God, why? How long? So, so follow his example. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be confused and to have concerns. You just got to do the right things with them. And the first and primary thing is to go to God, to pray to Him, to be honest with Him. And we see this all over the Psalms as well. But take those to God and ask Him through His Spirit to work in your heart, through His Word to bring truth to bear in your heart, to show Himself to you all the more clearly so that you can then deal with those struggles according to that. And the church and your brothers and sisters here and your elders and pastors hear the same reasons. Don't be afraid of confusions and concerns. Just deal with them rightly and be open with them. Take them to the Lord and let His truth and His Spirit work.